0: You know these machine learning uh, algorithms were starting to play a role in the products that these companies produced, and some of our most successful companies, you could tell, were uh, you know demonstrating a competitive advantage because of the math under the hood. And we looked at each other. I forget whether it was late 14 or early 15. We're like, geez, this really is the future. Uh, you know, Every company, independent of whatever space you're in, is going to need a machine learning or to AI hooked to it in order to drive value. And we should focus on that. And uh, really, we, we started Glasswing to just have that singular focus around these AI or machine learning-enabled software plays.
1: Zach video here. That was the voice of Rick Grinnell. He's the founder and managing partner of Glasswing Ventures, a venture capital firm that invests in pre-seed and seed stage frontier technology companies. Uh, Rick is a super interesting guest. He actually spent uh, much of his life as a musician. And uh, we get into that quite a bit over the course of the episode. Um, he went to MIT undergrad, Harvard Business School, uh, graduated around 2000, right when that bubble was getting ready to burst and uh, launched into the uh, venture world uh, in 2001, has been in venture capital for 20 years, uh, founded Glasswing Ventures uh, a little over five years ago. Um, Really looking forward to, to sharing this conversation. I think, you know, folks that are first time entrepreneurs that are looking to get inside the head of a VC or folks that are sort of. Uh, developing ideas or concepts in cybersecurity, I think in particular, are going to be um, really drawn to this episode. Uh, Rick's just a wealth of knowledge and just a really eclectic person. So looking forward to sharing this with everyone. Enjoy. And uh, thank you for your time as always. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach video here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Rick Grinnell of Glasswing Ventures. Hey, Rick, how's it going?
0: I'm um, great, and thanks for having me today. Really an honor to be uh, part of the platform. Um, just a little bit of background on me. Uh, you know, I'm one of the two founding partners of Glasswing Ventures, which is an early-stage venture capital fund Based in Boston, that is focused on AI-enabled software and frontier technologies. We invest typically in pre-seed and seed-stage companies that are on, you know, the cusp of generating revenue. More often than not, they're in the kind of uh, mid-to-latter stages of product development. And uh, we focus on companies that are going after enterprise use cases. So I focus predominantly on cybersecurity and physical security software. Uh, and my two partners, Rudina Ciceri, who co-founded the firm with me, and Sarah Fay, look at vertical-specific SaaS applications and cloud infrastructure in particular.
1: Great, that's a super tight overview. Just in general, like how's your focus or investment focus changed in the last few years? Has it been cybersecurity for a while? Is cybersecurity heating up more? Like, just any sort of like changes, especially as we look towards twenty twenty two. Any any sort of um, you know trends that you'd you'd share with listeners?
0: Yeah, so I hate to date myself, but I've been investing in cybersecurity now for almost twenty years. So I started out my career in venture uh, in. Uh, 2001 uh, was a partner at Fairhaven Capital through 2015, and then uh, Rodina and I put the gears in motion to get Glasswing going. About four years ago, uh, we, you know, since launched a first fund, we're launching a second fund, and uh, you know, through all of that, cybersecurity has been really at the forefront of what I do in particular. Uh, I, I hate to call myself a nerd, but I was a math nerd from day one. I went to MIT undergrad and uh, it was an electrical engineering major, but it was really the mathematics of EE that uh, you know, really inspired me. And as a VC, I always uh, you know, was uh, drawn towards those areas where there was more math intensity than not. I figured, you know, given my background... Uh, there was a competitive advantage to more math-intensive, um, uh, you know, applications and companies developing those types of applications. And cybersecurity, as you can imagine, is you know near or at the top of that list. Uh, especially if you go back to the early two thousands, uh, you know, cybersecurity was certainly uh, you know in its uh, call it infancy. Although you know we were all using antivirus and some level of, of firewall technology in the mid to late 90s, but really the, the, the more modern evolution around cybersecurity, defense, uh, and obviously some of the uh, attacker innovation has occurred since 2001 and uh, 2002. So if we think about the next generation firewalls, you know, starting with the net screens going into Juniper and Palo Alto networks and the like. You know, it was that 01 to ten era where a lot of that innovation happened, and then you know the next generation endpoint companies, the Crowdstrikes and silences happened. You know, over the last decade, and uh, you know that math really. You know, in the early days, it wasn't AI; it was just advanced uh, analytics that would help better detect. A uh, zero-day attack or exploit that hadn't been seen before, you know, which was different than the pattern matching that the early antivirus programs from Symantec and McAfee were offering, which was just looking for some, you know, uh, a match to a known, uh, you know, virus or worm that uh, you know had been seen before. So much more advanced math, and uh, you know, I wanted to be part of that run. So I became a, you know, basically a self-taught uh, cybersecurity investor, and have been doing that for, as I said, about twenty years now. So uh, first lead investment I did was back in two thousand and three, and still making cybersecurity investments today. Mm-hmm. I know that was a long-winded answer to uh, to that question, but you know, cybersecurity was extremely relevant in that early two thousand. Time frame when things like Code Red and Nimda were just uh, you know hitting the scene as as exploits, and now you know every day of the week, I think you look at the news and there's a new ransomware attack or you know other cyber exploits. You think about the Colonial Pipeline and uh, Kaseya and Microsoft exploits over the last year. You know this is a uh, you know a growing problem, and uh, you know even though it's been 20 years, no one has found the foolproof solution that avoids all attacks, nor, nor are we even close to that. So I think you know, we're in the early innings of uh, that cybersecurity defensive innovation. And, and you know, given we're an AI-focused fund, you know, we're you know, seeing a lot of impact from some of the early AI uh, technologies that are creating the next generation of defense.
1: Interesting. So th- there's a follow up question I have, and then I want to go back in time, even even prior to your investment career, because I think even before you were nerding out on cybersecurity, <laughs> you were nerding out on music, which I which I want to talk about, and then kind of draw in some really interesting correlations between uh, sort of music and math. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to unpacking that with you. But just as a follow up, and 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 first, like a, a thank you, Glasswing Ventures is is helping support a cybersecurity report right now that uh, a group of analysts that I work with um, are working on it and one of the interesting sort of outcomes as far and kind of one of the 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 angles that we're really um, we've we've pulled, you know, thread after thread on and it seems really interesting is sort of the move of cybersecurity solutions towards devops and and I'm just curious if you could sort of weigh in on that a bit and sort of like what that you know, shift means and sort of why, and sort of trying to, from the code base, you know, uh, you know, from the ground level, code base, ground level on upward, you know, really trying to sort of create, um, you know, cyber defense, uh, sort of software solutions in the market that are less vulnerable to attack.
0: Okay, A lot to unpack there. <laughs> I'm going to start with the the musical part where, where I thought you were heading with this. we'll
1: we'll go back to music in a second. I just I want to talk okay. about De- DevOps and just kind of double click on sort of what folks who are tuning into this podcast. We're going to have young entrepreneurs, folks that are looking to invest, and we'll talk about investment strategies later. And but we're also going to have some some folks that I think are really interested in in getting in you know in your mind a bit with regards to sure. cybersecurity trends. Well, and I think the DevOps trend is one that I just want to double click on.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely a uh, high profile trend right now, and in fact. You know, it's, it's uh, somewhat evident or very evident looking at just the market caps right now. SNCC versus say Rapid7, you know, which is the largest public cybersecurity company in town. I think, you know, as last time I checked, they're about a seven and a half billion dollar market cap and SNCC just raised money privately at an eight and a half billion dollar market cap. And, you know, they're focused on that, you know, DevOps security space. So, you know, the investors definitely have, uh, you know piled into that space you know that's just one example there are many others some of them in in, in town uh, others you know from israel bay area and other places but uh you know it all boils down to the fact that you know for years and years and years you know the security products that have gotten the greatest liftoff and have seen the greatest growth trajectories have been things that you know get applied around broken technologies right we patched our networks we Mm -hmm. put you know firewalls and uh, other you know network-based products uh, like Darktrace into uh, deployment. Then you know, obviously there's been this whole evolution from antivirus to uh, you know endpoint EDR and the like. You know the as I said, CrowdStrike's and Silence and Sentinel ones. Uh, you know there there are all of these layers of security that essentially are protecting. You know, vulnerable networks and vulnerable code, um, and allow data. And, you know, obviously, a lot of the uh, exploits going after PII are because these systems are vulnerable. Sometimes, you know, by mistake. Sometimes, maliciously, because someone puts a backdoor into a code base. Um, You know, sometimes it's just the very design of those systems from the beginning. You know, no one thought when they designed, you know, IP networks that. Uh, people would uh, exploit them the way they have over the last couple of decades. So today, you know, that DevSecOps arena is one way to better solidify, you know, the code base from day one. So if you're creating, you know, an application, SaaS application, you know, the next Salesforce or or what have you, you know, ensure that from day one there are good Development practices that uh, you know, strong uh, you know processes and uh, strong coding methodologies are being deployed and putting intelligence into the system so that you can better detect if uh, you know there is uh, code weakness, whether you know something malicious has been inadvertently or intentionally been been put into the code base, or whether there was just something sloppy done. So you know, it's a huge uh, you know, an evolving market at this point, and I think you know we'll see more successful companies in that in that space. Uh, it seems like every day of the week at Glasswing, we're seeing yet another uh, startup that's trying to address this market, either for you know SMB customers or you know larger customers at a better price point. Uh, you know, th- there's a lot of frothiness in this space for sure.
1: All right, let's take a hard left turn into music. Let's go back <laughs> in time. and you know we were doing our research um myself and and uh, my production coordinator. and I, I don't know. I'd I love for you to hear the list from you, but keyboards, guitars, bass, drums. It seems like you're it sounds like you're a one-man band, but I'd love to sort of like hear about your love for music and when it started and Sort of, uh, I think you spent some time as a in a, in a wedding band, and, and so like, let's talk oh about boy. music. I, I'd love, I'd love to <laughs> You've hear. You've dug about, too deep. Yeah, we we've dug a bit a big deep here. It's like let's let's take a journey down that road. I think it's really fascinating that and, and, and probably um, advantageous for you to kind of like have that kind of eclectic background when you're kind of you know just approaching the, the world of business.
0: Yeah, sure. So I guess that was inspired. Uh primarily by my dad. You know, as a kid growing up, you know, he had been a uh a uh, trumpet player, you know, played through high school and community bands growing up, but you know, he was an amateur organist. And because of that, you know, most people grew up with a piano in their living room or family room. I grew up with a theater organ in our living room. And my dad would play the organ most nights after dinner. That was his uh you know, relaxation or his uh, mental therapy because he was a high school teacher. So I think, you know, some uh, teachers might go home and have a cocktail. He would come home, have dinner, and then go play the organ as his uh, therapy. I, I'm joking. I, he's never said that it that way. But, uh, you know, as someone who now has two kids in middle school, you know, I can understand if that was the case. Yeah, But, but he... Uh, You know, would play every night, and he started teaching me to play by ear when I was probably three or four years old, and then started teaching me music, uh, you know, how to read, you know, bass and treble staffs at the age of probably five or six, and then at the age of seven, I know my parents contacted, uh, you know, an an organ teacher, not a piano teacher, but a guy who was uh, kind of the best. Organist in town, this is in Schenectady, New York, where I grew up, a um, guy by the name of Fred Brumbaugh. And, and he agreed to come over and give me an audition. And he's like, oh, come on, this kid's seven, he can't even touch the pedals. How is he going to be one of my students? And, you know, I played for him, and I think his jaw dropped, and he's like, all right, I'll start teaching him next week. Because uh, despite the fact that, you know, my legs weren't long enough to touch the pedals like he would need to to play the bass notes as an organist. My left and right hand work was pretty darn good, thanks to my dad. So, you know, I took lessons uh, from second grade through senior year of high school. As you mentioned, through that time, you know, even in middle school, I started playing, I guess, quote unquote, professional, even though I, you know, didn't get paid a lot, but I got paid to be a church organist at one of the local churches. I uh, joined a wedding band with a group of folks that were in their 30s and 40s when I was 16. And uh, you know, had uh, you know great weekends between the church organ jobs and uh, you know playing a few weddings here and there as part of that, that uh, opportunity, and then the wedding band, you know, I was doing pretty well. I had a lot of classmates in high school who were jealous that, you know their jobs at Burger King and, and Walmart and other places that you know they were working many more hours than I was didn't pay as much as being a musician, which. You know, I guess was a little bit unfair, but you know, music helped pay the bills and uh gave me some spending money when I came to Boston to start as a freshman at MIT. Wow. So I wanna double click
1: on on the wedding band. And also like what a what a fun job relative to like working in retail or or at a restaurant. Like not only were you being paid well to play music, but you're also like playing like playing music at a wedding, which is just—I mean, I didn't even go to a wedding in my life until I was in my twenties—and um, they're there's so much fun, right? So it's just such a kind of fun environment to be paid to kind of help, kind of drive the the rhythm of the party. Um, do you have like one or like do you have a particular story? You know, I, I, when we did the pre-podcast Q and A, like you kind of referenced that you'd be throwing some curveballs at weddings. You know, you'd, you'd have one sort of kind of set game plan for for the wedding, and then you know maybe you know, the brides uh parents would come and and throw you a nice curveball like hey let's go with sinatra today um just any any fun kind of wedding story you want to share and and that from that period in your
0: life yeah for for sure so uh, you know as i told you in kind of the pre uh pre-prep here the uh one of the wilder stories and it did uh, you know help me uh probably learned to be more flexible <laughs> was, sure. you know, we, we, we would practice one or two nights a week, and, you know, leading up to a wedding, you know, you would know, uh, you know, a couple of months in advance, what somebody's first dance was going to be and what songs they wanted to hear, what they didn't want to hear. And, you know, remember this was kind of in the late eighties timeframe. So there was a lot of fifties and sixties oldies, and there was a lot of, you know, Whitney Houston and cool and the gang thrown in. And, uh, Right. Every now and then, somebody would request you know a classic rock set list that we would you know you know brush up on uh, some of the old classics and you'd be ready to start you know playing Hotel California or something by the Eagles and the bride's dad would stop by and go okay i don 't know what my daughter and her husband told you to play today, but I only want to hear." songs from frank sinatra and tony bennett and we look at each other and go oh <laughs> <laughs> what are you hey, do in that situation <laughs> well fortunately the gang that i played with were really like long-term uh musicians in fact our bass player slash sax player was somebody that had been a music teacher for about 30 years uh, and he was just gifted about knowing pretty much any song he could play anything by ear, and could throw out chords. So if we knew that was coming, you know, during the next break, he would you know go into his bag and scratch out on paper. You know, here are some chord progressions for you know, you know, uh, "Fly Me to the Moon." Or, uh, you know, and a lot of and a lot of times because you know this is the olden days where things would be on paper. We didn't have uh, you know iPads with sheet music like you see a lot of even professional musicians using today. You know, if you've ever seen Billy Joel in concert in the last few years, he's got an iPad propped up on his piano for for either the music or the lyrics or both. But you know, that didn't exist back in the late eighties. But you know, we would scratch out on paper and uh, you know, sometimes would have the the chord charts for some of these songs and, you know, that would be tucked away in a bag and we'd quickly <laughs> get going I mean we were all pretty good at, at sight reading so even if it was a song I had never played before you know it wasn't that hard to uh, you know do something that sounded pretty good at the time but yeah we had to scramble at uh, at times uh, fortunately I never you know was um, a participant in a wedding that went the wrong way you know we ne- we never had one that was supposed to happen that uh, didn't happen. But I had heard stories before I joined the band. You know those things happening, like the day of, you know, the event gets canceled. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, like straight out of the movies. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, it sounds like you de- you certainly got a good uh, good practice for the the improv chops early on. I'm sure that did that help? Like, so then you talk about like that graduating high school and and sort of like what you were thinking about in terms of like where you wanted to go to college and what you wanted to study and and how strong was music still gonna be at that point in your life feel like it was going to be a prominent role and eventually what your career was
0: right so growing up let me give you a little backstory on you know where the whole technology thing comes in so yeah uh as a lover of music predominantly by playing the organ so that was my first instrument my second instrument i started taking shortly after taking organ lessons was the cello so i was a cellist um through elementary through high school really haven't played much since it was just something i did because i liked the people that i was playing with more than i necessarily wanted to keep playing the instrument um but you know over the years then self-taught myself on electric bass in middle school and you know the bass player in the middle school uh, band and, and the like but you know it was the technology around creating sound so again i was trained on an organ electronic right not acoustic like uh, the piano that's sitting in a lot of folks homes so uh I was really keen on learning how sounds were created, you know, whether there was a trumpet stop or a flute stop, you know, what was the, you know, the circuitry that uh, made different sounds sound the way they did. So I got into, you know, a little bit of learning around uh, circuitry got into uh, kind of a love of synthesizers as you know, that kind of late seventies, early eighties sound. If you think about, Mm. uh, you know, some of the, things that were going on back in the disco day. It was Giorgio Moroder who kind of pioneered uh, you know, synthesis being used. And then if you think about you know, the early 80s and British pop in particular, uh, it was a cool time for a kid who loved playing keyboards and liked all these electronic sounds. So I had the fortune of going to school in a school district that had an old ARP odyssey um, which, uh, if you know David Friend, uh, the local, you know, entrepreneur superstar, has done Wasabi and uh, you know, was a bunch of other companies. Uh, but you know, he was one of the co-founders of ARP back in the day. Just a shout out to him. But you know, his early keyboard, the Odyssey, which was a one-note playable, so monophonic keyboard, was in a lot of the popular music at the time. It was kind of that synth and the Mini Moog that had kind of this mass-market radio play and uh, my school district had one and being exposed to that and being able to play around with it and one of my favorite bands at the time was jay giles band also from the boston area and i remember once being able to take that keyboard home for about a week and uh there was a jay giles album called showtime that had a lot of synths in it and playing with this ARP Odyssey. I was able to kind of recreate a lot of that analog sound and learn these songs by ear, and it was like this moment. And I forget whether it was in seventh or eighth grade, but I was like, "Oh my god, I want to build stuff like this! How cool is this? You can recreate all these cool sounds with with, at the time was you know probably a thousand or fifteen hundred dollar keyboard." So my dream through high school was to work for a company. uh, You know, ARP went away, but a company like that—the next evolution in uh, companies, obviously, were the Yamahas and the Rollins, which were Japanese. But there were a few American companies. You know, Ray Kurzweil had a, a keyboard company at the time. There was Kurzweil. Um, Which at one point had the best sounding kind of sampled piano in the world. There was another company out in California, Emu Systems, that had an emulator. And my dream was to work for one of them. And uh, thus, you know, that combination of circuitry, tech, and, you know, sound plus the love of music inspired me to go to MIT. And you might ask, well, why? MIT and not someplace else. And it was because MIT had the Media Lab mm-hmm. and MIT had Dr. Bose, you know, Amar Bose, the founder of Bose Speakers, uh, uh, on, you know, a- as part of their community. Dr. Bose was on faculty. He was one of the course six or electrical engineering and computer science professors. You know, the Media Lab had guys like Todd Mack over there who were really cutting edge with some of the sound work they were doing and, and composition work. So I was drawn to a school that had people like that, um, you know, as, as part of their overall community. And I also thought it was cool that Tom Scholz, who you may or may not know as the guitarist for the band Boston, had gotten his mechanical engineering degree from MIT. So some of my oh, kind of mu- musical heroes had an MIT affiliation and thus I applied there early. I got in and, you know, the rest is history.
1: So when you that that's really interesting. When you went to MIT, then was the, were you were you were you interested in sort of like the mechanics behind like creating like new tools for sound and like new instruments? And is that part of what you you were seeking? Is that that like kind of pursuing and scratching that sort of curiosity?
0: It was less around mechanics. It was more around the electronics. So it was the okay. signal processing that would go into creating better. Uh, you know, replications of guitars and, and, uh, you know, pianos, you know, but once you, you know, here's the thing is once I got to MIT, you know, you pretty quickly learn that, uh, you know, the uh, universe is a lot bigger than just worrying about how to better replicate the sound of a piano electronically. And, you know, your eyes open and you go, Oh, okay. You know, I want to solve bigger problems Mm -hmm. because, you know, to be honest, most of the sound innovation was going to come by having just more processing power and memory inside the keyboards. To the extent you had more memory, you could store more samples, which would allow you to have more versions of somebody playing the middle C of a Steinway piano at various um, velocities. So. Given that, you know, looking at that and go, okay, so creating a better piano or a better guitar is really just a memory issue and maybe a processing issue. Uh, What are the bigger things out there that involve signal processing? And, and, you know, uh, video being a two dimensional problem was dramatically harder uh, at the time. And most of the things that we take for granted today, like Zoom and uh, WebEx and Netflix weren't possible back in that late 80s to early 90s timeframe. You know, compression algorithms for video were just becoming a thing. There were no high bandwidth mass market pipes in order to push digital video. Um, You know, so, so I got very excited about how to do video compression and video pre and post processing at scale. And, uh, Thus, you know, did a bachelor's and master's thesis. I was part of a five year program where you combine your thesis work for both degrees into one. So I did a combined project um, around video that then I leveraged in order to get a job out of school at a company called PictureTel, which was a Boston based company that came out of an MIT lab. Um, from Professor Stalin and two of his uh, grad students, and turned it into you know, the world's leading video conferencing company, mm. kind of in that late 80s to early 90s timeframe. So I jumped into there as a research engineer in 1993 and got to work on the next generation of compression and video preprocessing algorithms that that company and the overall industry were working on. And uh, some of that work led to things. That got standardized. You know, part of my uh, my engineering job was to uh, represent the company as part of the MPEG and ITU standards committees, uh, standards bodies, and uh, you know that work has led you know over a couple of decades now to what we now take for granted with MPEG four and H two sixty four. So uh, I always you know have a little bit of pride when I get onto a Zoom like we're doing right now or. You know, watch something on Netflix. That some of the techniques that we were working on at PictureTel back in 1993, 1994, are now part of those standards that deliver, you know, compressed digital video to the mass market. So it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, that company, you know, relative to the success of you know companies like Zoom today, is. is you know very small you know i think at its peak picture tell may have had a billion dollar market cap but at the time you know having a billion dollar market cap as a small public company in massachusetts was, was pretty cool yeah yeah i was just going to ask the, the two questions i was going to ask was,
1: was sort of like what was sort of the the exit or sort of like kind of end game or or sort of like end story for picture tell and then also like talk a bit about your relationship with the the vp of marketing steve johnson who sort of helped yeah. you migrate from engineering more to the business side of tech?
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought Steve up. So, you know, I uh, was working in this research engineering role, which was, as I said, helping develop the next generation of algorithms to better compress video. And I didn't even really get into how hard that problem was. A standard definition uncompressed is about 45 megabits per second. As you can imagine, HD is a multiple of that, but we didn't have HD back in 1992, 1993. Uh, getting that into the digital pipes of the time, which were multiples of 64 kilobits per second, ISDN lines, or you could buy a T1 or rent a T1 for Verizon for one and a half megabits per second. You know, think about how slow that is compared to what we take for granted today. You know, getting 200 megabits per second upload and download speeds from, you know, Comcast is, you know, you don't even think about that. You think about that as even a slow data rate at this yeah, right. point. So anyway, so I was really, um, you know, into that technical role and working with the standards groups and developing these next generation algorithms to solve that incredibly difficult problem. And um, you know, I, at the same time, you know, again, I'll, I'll throw it back to my dad. My dad, as a teacher, was also an amateur stock market investor and. You know, I just remember on weekends or days off, you know, I'd be building Lego as a kid, and uh, you know, he'd be sitting on the couch reading the Wall Street Journal, trying to figure out where to, you know, invest, uh, you know, his next paycheck. <laughs> and uh,
1: you know, I. Uh, didn't I have to double click one. on your dad for a second. What a Renaissance man! So he was
0: a high school teacher. Yeah, like he was an organist high school. Yeah, and yeah, he was and, high and an investor. Yeah, go ahead. He was a high school. Social studies teacher and chair of the local high school social studies department. Fascinating. And he uh, was also a phenomenal athlete back in his uh, okay younger days. You know, a pitcher and football player, star at Union College. Uh, you know, I didn't follow in his footsteps with either baseball or <laughs> football. I, I became a tennis player, but. Um, he was really, really, and still is, really, really interesting. And both my parents just wonderful people and two of my best friends in the world. But he um, was really interested in the stock market and would basically save a little bit of every paycheck and every now and then would figure out the next company that uh, would make for uh, you know, a good long-term investment, and I kind of learned that by osmosis. He was mm-hmm. considering, you know, if you think about back in the eighties, it was IBM and sure. uh, you know Xerox, or, or GE were the the high flyers. It certainly wasn't you know Microsoft and Nvidia. But right. because of me, you know, growing up with him, I was always interested in the public markets. And because PictureTel was a public company. I was struck by the fact that we had all this great technology. We were you know, far outpacing our competitors in uh, technological innovation, but our stock price just day-to-day wasn't moving. And you know, that's when I realized that, wow, you could have the best engineering in the world, but sales and marketing is what really drives the sure. you know, quarterly progress and thus the stock price. Sure. So, I got interested increasingly in doing things that could help. Have a more immediate impact on the value of the company, so I didn't want to leave technology, but I wanted to go from something that was focused on the longer term. You know, given my engineering work, tended to be things that would, you know, get into a product in a year or two, versus you know the sales and marketing team were driving you know quarterly performance. So I got tapped early on. I, I, I think people in the company knew that I had this interest. So this gentleman that you mentioned, Steve Johnston, who is the VP of marketing for a portion of the company that I worked for, uh, periodically would tap me on an informal basis and say, Hey Rick, you know, I have you know a group that's coming in from one of our channel partners, or we have a group of new salespeople that are in for sales training. And I would love you from the You know, cutting edge research perspective to talk to these folks about how our technology is different than our competition and what the roadmap for our technology looks like. And Mm. um, I think one of my skills was being able to take complex technology and putting it into terms that, uh, you know, the sales folks or, you know, mere mortals in general could understand. And um, increasingly, it's a great I skill. That's double, like that's like yeah, the skill. Yeah. That's like the, the skill of a,
1: a New York Times reporter. Like take these complex topics and you know help, you know, middle
0: schoolers be able to digest them. You know, like just yeah. really, you know, no, it exactly. down to basic principles. Exactly. So I did more and more of that, and I really, really liked it. And at some point I said, Steve, how do I do this as my day job as opposed to the freelance thing that I do when I'm not writing code? For right. our next generation um, you know compression algorithms, and you know it took a few months, but he eventually created a technical marketing position that hadn't existed before, and uh, brought me into that role, so I left video research and moved into marketing and worked for him and a couple of other folks for a little over a year. But in the meantime, about halfway through my run in marketing, Steve Johnson left to go launch another uh, conferencing company with a few other PictureTel folks. Uh, that company became known as Clear One Communications. But uh, as soon as that company got funded for their Series A, I guess we would have called it a Series Seed today, but they raised a Series A. In middle of '97, I left PictureTel and rejoined Steve and some of my other colleagues from PictureTel to get that company going. So there, I became director of marketing, was employee number eight, and did that for about a year. But you know, looking around me, both at PictureTel and at ClearOne, and just you know, through the network I had in the, in the tech world, it seemed like most of the CEOs and marketing folks and you know, business functions were folks that had an MBA, not necessarily a technical degree. And here I was sitting with a double E, masters and bachelors from MIT, but uh, you know, didn't necessarily have the degree that gave me the stamp that I was some legit business person. And thought, well, you know, well, why don't I apply to a couple of business schools? And if I get in, you know, that'll be the you know probably right opportunity because I was you know approaching age twenty eight at that point, the right time to do it if I was ever going to do it mm-hmm. and uh, you know lo and behold I was lucky enough to get accepted into Harvard Business School and remember it was a hard day coming back to the office and you know obviously uh, you know Steve and others in the company had to write me recommendations but uh, it was hard still telling them that yep your recommendation helped me get in and I'm going to leave yeah so I did I did maintain a part-time role with them through the first year of business school but uh you know, ultimately, I, I didn't end up, uh, you know, continuing on there past that first year. They ended up getting acquired, but uh, uh, you know, again, like with MIT, how your horizons expand. Once I got to Harvard, I realized she's you know having equity in a little conferencing company was maybe not the be all end all, and there was a, a you know a bigger universe of, of things that I could think about for the future, and one of them being venture capital.
1: Interesting is is that was that sort of your first um was that when you started to get sort of like a venture capital itch like was that at harvard business school and then how how long were you at Harvard Business School
0: yeah, so I was at h b s from ninety eight through two thousand so graduated in early june of of two thousand, so I was sitting in classes through the peak of the internet bubble and yeah graduated right after the bubble burst uh, it was a very interesting time so uh, venture was interesting to me and i learned more about it really through kind of my clear one experience since they did raise money although i wasn't part of the fundraise but at least you know i got more exposure to uh, you know what it meant to be in a venture funded startup you know by the time i had gotten to picture tell they had already gone public so it really wasn't a vc backed company although as, as a I didn't mention, part of the demonstrations I did for marketing back in the day was for our board of directors. And 2 of our board members were 2 of the you know, most famous VCs of all time who had maintained their board positions post-IPO. So that was Jim Swartz out of Excel and Vinod Khosla, who was still a Kleiner at the time. So I got to meet Jim and, and Vinod very, very early on in my career. And at that point, I gotta tell you, I was like a 24-year-old kid I had no idea what venture capital was. To me, they were just you know two board members coming in and it you know, didn't really mean that much to me how, how they made their living other than the fact that they were the overlords to my CEO. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you know, if you fast forward now, as I learned more about venture through that Clear One experience and then uh, into business school where a few of my section mates had actually worked in venture firms, one of them in particular was at Battery Ventures prior to to, to business school, and uh, you know they would you know talk about what the experience was like working as a kind of pre MBA associate and whatnot. And I just got more interested as that uh, became clear to me what, what what these folks did and and how it was really on the cutting edge of uh, you know the tech world in a different way. That you were helping to create these companies from. A very early age, and you know, while you you weren't necessarily a, a founder per se, you could help um, you know significantly materially impact. Yeah, yeah, you could have a material impact early on to take a company that could just be an idea and a handful of engineers and turn that into the next you know game changing company. And I wanted to give it, give it a shot. So for my summer job in between the two years of business school. That's really what I set my sights on. I, I interviewed with a number of VC firms on the East Coast and West Coast. Ended up getting uh, an offer from what was Fidelity Ventures in Boston, which okay. uh, you know now has you know ceased to exist as Fidelity Ventures, but you know has spun out on a couple of occasions. You know, the, the first group really that I worked with went off to do Volition capital and, oh, and sean Fidelwell
1: and those guys yeah exactly yep. yeah
0: yeah sean uh larry was yep. you know one of the guys that i knew first back in the day cool but anyway so yeah. volition uh and then f prime came out of that same uh lineage uh a little bit later but anyway i was at Angelity ventures for the summer and fall of 99 and you know i uh can't say that i loved venture then i really thought that i i loved the experience but i wasn't sure i wanted to do that full-time post-mba and uh you know set my sights to really two paths for that second year one was working on a business plan with a couple of my section mates and you know as you know everybody had a business plan at harvard sure. back in that 99 <laughs> 2000 time frame this is the thing you did if you didn't oh, have, yeah. have a business Yeah, if you didn't have a business plan in your back pocket, you were kind of an oddity in 1999. Yeah, you got to be ready to to scorch the earth on fire. Yeah, exactly.
1: But 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 the other path
0: though is to, to get in early with a startup that was already established. And it just so happened that Fidelity had a company that I had worked on a little bit over that summer of '99. That was on fire, and I mean that in a good way, although right. it ended up being on fire in a bad way. I don't know dot <laughs> com bubble burst, but you know they had a company that was competing with Akamai in the content delivery space that, that company was called Adaro. and I ultimately jumped on board uh, you know that opportunity in uh, the fall of ninety nine it's part of a class project with uh, Joe sitter's entrepreneurial marketing class at Harvard, and then that became a full time job in the spring of 2000. Even before we had graduated, there were the, our, our entire team that worked on this marketing project got absorbed into the company, and uh, you know we were about two months away from an IPO when the markets just completely tanked, and you know the IPO got put on hold, and obviously it never happened. We ended up selling the company. Uh, to Inc. to me and uh, another portion to Colt Telecom a few months later. They literally sold parts. Well, I'm curious... You mentioned just a couple minutes back,
1: you're, at that point in your career, you had, you had interviewed with a bunch of VC firms on the East and West Coast. You you started to gain some experience there um, at Fidelity Ventures. and. But you also expressed, and you just shared, like you had, you still had a little bit of like hesitation of of sort of pursuing VC as a career. Can you just kind of share a little bit of sort of that like the that like introspective state you're in at that point in your life, and like what were the what were the pros and cons you were weighing, and like if I was if I were to do venture, I'd do it like this, or th- this is something about venture that I'm not quite sure that I'm that I'm hit with, or will fully you know. You know, fill me up. Like, what what was some of that sort of um, internal? I don't know if you call it internal struggle, but just internal kind of debate in your mind of like what path to take.
0: Yeah, there was really one primary issue, and it was that from what I could tell from the experience I had summer of ninety nine, and from what I could see from my classmates who had done internships at. Variety of other firms in town and on the West Coast is that venture was much more of a lone wolf occupation. And the analogy I've Mm -hmm. always used is that in many firms, you know, the partners are siloed in such a way that they look like specialists at a medical practice where there's the heart specialist, you know, then there's somebody else who's the you Know, eye, ears, and throat, or I, um, there's, there's somebody else who's, you know, the kidney specialist. And the only time those specialists would necessarily come together to collaborate would be in the Monday meeting. And, you know, it wasn't a team sport. And having worked at Picture Tell, having worked at Clear One, you know, every day it was a team sport. And I love that. I love the, Enthusiasm and the camaraderie of a group of folks that all had a singular goal, whether it was writing code for the next product, whether it was you know selling uh, you know into twenty two accounts that quarter in order to make quota whatever the goal was. it was great to have a group of people that were part of that process and from what I could tell venture maybe on a good day you might have one other person uh to work with, especially as a junior person, you know you had to definitely fight for, you know, partner time in many firms, as you know the partners were were busy. They were on boards. They were fundraising. They, they might be doing you know ten other things beyond just the tasks that you as an associate or analyst might have in front of you. So, right. um, I wrestled with as much as it seemed like an interesting career path. Did I want to be? In you know uh, a role where you know at best I might have one person quote unquote on my team with some some frequency. So that's why coming out of um, you know that opportunity with fidelity, I was more excited about going into one of their high flowing portfolio companies. Obviously, that seemed like there was going to be more near term upside. You know, it takes a long time to get into the carry at a venture firm, but you know if you're in the right Operating role and in one of the portfolio companies, you know, the success can be, you know, fairly quick. You know, counting in, you know, small number of years, especially in that dot com bubble timeframe, where you know companies could become what we call unicorns now in two to three years. But anyway, that that unicorn that uh, existed on paper never happened in reality. So as uh, I told you, we sold the company in a couple of pieces and. Uh, Got the investors some money back, and long story short, you know, one of the folks that had been at Fidelity with me um, connected with me and said, "Hey, look, I'm, I'm going to be launching a new venture firm here in town." This was late 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're going to stand it up in early 01. How would you like to join me? I, you know, I enjoyed working with you summer and, and fall of 99, and you know, I, I basically need to create a. Came from scratch, and so anyway, he and I and uh, you know my best friend from undergrad and grad school at MIT started what ultimately became Fairhaven Capital, and we did that for 15 years. Now, I got to tell you, in the beginning, I didn't think it was necessarily going to be a 15-year run. In fact, if I was betting you, uh, I would have bet you a dollar that I wouldn't have been there more than two or three years interesting because i really i really thought given my experience during that summer job and what i knew of the venture industry that i wasn't going to love you know this more lone wolf siloed approach but this uh you know firm from from the beginning was set up to be a team sport so all three of us collaborated on every deal that came in the door and that collaboration made um You know, going to work in a venture role, a lot of fun.
1: Fun. That was the word I was thought you were going to say. It sounds like fun if you're if you're scrumming every day with two people that you trust on different, you know, different projects, different ventures, and and collaborating. I mean, that that's what I find fun in business is what you just described. So yeah, I could I could see that that quickly now and, and just and real quick before you keep going i think what you what you sort of shared a little earlier and i think it's good advice for young people we have a lot of young listeners on on the podcast i think it's 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 a really valuable mindset to have when you're considering the type of jobs in your career especially early in your career if you're still in your like you know 20s even your late 20s you know, you were very mindful that if you went to maybe a venture firm where you were just an associate or analyst and you had a lack of connectivity to the partners, you know, th- there's th- the word mentorship comes to mind or lack thereof, right? Just the, the lesser ability to be around those that are in the places where you're going to be able to learn the most and accelerate your career. And it sounds like for you, you got into this fortuitous opportunity to partner with people and be. At the top of the firm, and therefore, you know, be seeing and touching and collaborating across things. So, I think it probably quickly, it sounds like it quickly sort of changed your mindset on sort of like what turned out to not be a sort of a siloed approach to, to supporting uh, ventures.
0: Yeah, no, definitely that team approach made it interesting and fun day in, day out. And to be clear, I did not start out at the top. You know, I was a senior associate when I got hired in, so it okay. was my buddy. Uh, so there was, from day one, there was one partner and two, you know, junior people, the senior associates. This is at Fairhaven. Yeah. This was the early days of Fairhaven. You know, the the initial, the initial fund was known as TD Capital Ventures, but that team became Fairhaven in 07. So I tend to refer to that whole run as the Fairhaven years from Jan, Jan 01 through the end of 15. But, you know, we, we grew from that team of, uh, Three to f- we had an, another partner in '02, and then by the end of the run, you know, at the peak, we had six of us at the partner level. Uh, one of them being my partner and co-founder at Glasswing, Radina Cesari, who uh, you know started out with us when she was in her first year at HBS, um, you know, on a part-time basis, and then joined us full-time in 2007 after she had worked in uh, Microsoft's Corp Dev team. For a couple of years. So uh, you know, we uh did scale up to be a bigger team at that point. You know, not everybody worked on everybody free deal, you know, we we did silo a little bit, but every silo had a team and that's why it continued to be fun and why I ended up staying in the venture world, you know, first at that organization for fifteen years and then when we started you know, glasswing and, and got really the wheels turning in 2016 to start building out the in- infrastructure before we raised the fund. Uh, from day one, we said, you know, we're doing this as a team, and you know, we're going to have a, you know a culture that is team based and can have fun at the same time as you know working diligently on uh, you know our uh, portfolio companies and and uh, you know managing. Um you know our l p capital in a you know uh, you know appropriate fashion so
1: uh what was the know, inspiration or, or rationale behind sort of like last Wing at that point like it, you sort of after that fifteen year run was it was it you really wanted to take sort of a new sort of like novel approach to venture or sort of like what was what was the rationale behind that decision
0: yeah i I'd say it was really around this a i a machine learning trend that we were seeing. Okay. So Radina and I were uh, two of the folks at the core of the you know enterprise SaaS, enterprise software and cybersecurity thematic areas at the old firm. And from, I'd say, 2010, 2011 on, uh, the companies that we were in, investing in, not necessarily by, by design, I don't think either of us had a... Machine learning, uh, investing strategy at, the, at that point. But, you know, through the vertical specific themes that we were chasing, um, you know, Radina was doing some things around marketing optimization. I was doing cybersecurity. You know, these machine learning, uh, algorithms were starting to play a role in the products that these companies produced. And some of our most successful companies, you could tell, were, uh, You know, demonstrating a competitive advantage because of the math under the hood. And we looked at each other, I forget whether it was late 14 or early 15. We're like, geez, this really is the future. Uh, You know, every company, independent of whatever space you're in, is going to need a machine learning or apply to AI hook to it in order to drive value. And we should focus on that. And uh, really, we, we started Glasswing to just have that singular focus around these AI or machine learning enabled software plays. You know, Fairhaven was a great time, it was a great run, but it, it was broader and you couldn't necessarily have that singular focus there. So, thus, the creation of Glasswing and, uh, you know, it's been you know, extremely uh, you know, exciting. You know, we've got a great portfolio um uh, from you know cybersecurity companies through uh you know enterprise SaaS and cloud infrastructure plays, you know, all of them have a machine learning hook to them. And uh you know, we're extremely proud of that uh first fund portfolio and we're really excited as we're you know embarking on our uh you know our second fund. Great. So I'd love to chat a bit about sort of
1: your, uh, or, or I guess for for some of the like some of the listeners that maybe have a machine learning oriented sort of company in the cybersecurity sector that are perhaps looking to you know pitch and work with Glasswing they they're familiar with your experience your pedigree your team and they you know they, they desire you know Glasswing's their you know top choice as a as a as a venture partner um, and, and actually we've we found from a lot of a lot of the guests that I've had on the podcast over over the last few years. Um, Oftentimes, like the there's a the podcast discussion we have becomes, you know, I've had some some guests say to me, oh, I make it required listening for a company before they pitch me. Um, Mm -hmm. My buddy Clem Casalot joked with me about that, like when he was still at uh, managing director of TechStars Boston. He was like, Uh yeah, I would just have companies sort of like just to get kind of you know graduate a few levels before like we have the conversation and they pitch. But for those listeners in particular, but uh, what. What's your sort of advice, and what kind of things are you looking for? like when when folks approach you, um, you know what's the right type of approach? and what's you know what are sort of tips and best practices for pitches? and just like what types of things are you interested in um, right now in terms of like you know receiving sort of uh, inbounds uh, from from new companies that are sort of early stage that really
0: need the support to to really you know catalyze their early growth? Yeah, let me talk about some of the areas that we're most excited about right now so from a cyber perspective you know my world you know I'm looking at uh, you know really technologies that help better manage the patchwork of solutions an organization would already have in place so as you know the whole security landscape and it Typical enterprise's security stack is littered with point solutions from a variety of different vendors. Rarely would you buy everything from one. And because of that, it's you know, hard to know whether your defense is optimized. I, I always liken it to a baseball analogy of the Yankees, that they can buy the best players year in and year out. They normally do, but they don't always feel the best team. You know, when was the last time they won a World Series? So, uh, you know, security is a lot like that. That you can buy best firewall and best endpoint, but you don't necessarily know that you've got the best coordinated defense uh, to protect your organization's data. Mm. So, you know, I'm looking at things that help you know holistically manage that uh, patchwork of existing solutions. I'm also looking for things that make it much more straightforward for what I would call a uh, junior security analyst to identify and respond to security incidents. Uh, I think the amount of noise and the complexity has gotten so great today that you know, it's hard for somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience to uh, you know, have the insight or be able to respond in an optimal manner. And, and these people, as you can imagine, are hard to find. And they're hard to, to retain. So you keep hearing about, you know, security labor shortages. It, it is a huge problem. And at the highest level, the folks that can respond to the biggest challenges that, you know, our adver- adversaries throw our way. And, and unfortunately, these adversaries are very well trained. They're very well funded. They've got great resources. And you think about some poor. Security operations center analyst sitting in like a mid-market company, you know, how is that person going to, uh, you know, respond to that attack? So anything that can help lift the capabilities uh, of of what I would call that that mass-market security professional is huge right now. So I would still look at other ideas in that cybersecurity world. But th- those are 2 that are you know, uh, near and dear to me. For the rest of the team at Glasswing, you know, we're really looking at things that help automate uh, you know, vertical specific tasks in you okay. know, manufacturing, things that help streamline supply chain, which seems like an obvious one right now given everything going on oh, in yeah. the world. Um, we are you know interested in things that help automate uh, you know human process things that you know tend to be highly repeatable where you know a uh, you know AI enabled function can help uh, scale each individual in a more meaningful way or allow that individual to not do that task anymore you know at all uh, and then we look at, uh, you know, mar- you know AI-enabled marketplaces or you know marketplaces that have some innate intelligence in them. You know, we have a company in our portfolio at this point called LabViva that's already doing some of that. You may have covered them in the past uh, since they're a local company, but uh, you know, it, it's these automation plays in particular from security through manufacturing, supply chain, you know, uh, marketing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, tasks, whatnot that uh, we're looking for right now. So back to the right. first part of your question: yeah. What uh, do we, you know, look for in a presentation, or how should an entrepreneur reach out to us now? Yeah. I think you've heard this a million times, but warm intros are always better than cold uh, yep. intros. I don't think there's anything new there. However, I will admit. That you know, a few of our best deals have come in cold in in the past. Although that is not the majority case, you know, most of the time it's either someone you've known previously and built a relationship with for you know a decade or more. You know, uh, you know, there are many examples of those. It's someone within your portfolio at an executive level that refers one of their buddies. Um, to you, there are, you know, obviously advisors. You know, we have uh, a number of uh, world-class advisors on our on our team that bring you know deal flow to us, and uh, you know, so so warm warm intro from anyone. You know, if, if you don't know someone on the Glasswing team directly, it's pretty easy given uh, LinkedIn and other tools to figure out who the the path. Yep. You know, the least resistance is to, to get to me with a warm intro. I mean, that, that does mean something that you can, uh, you know, find your way to me or to Redina or Sarah or the rest of the team with, uh, you know, that, that warm approach. It, it just shows me that you've got the, you know, the, the sales strategy and, and uh, you know, the mindset to then more effectively sell. Once you've taken our money, <laughs> you're going to start selling to customers. in that same approach, you know, you, you got to figure how do you break into an account? Because rarely is, is that cold approach, you know, just cold calling going to uh, generate, uh, you know, a high value prospect. I mean, it happens. I mean, obviously, we all have inside sales teams that do that day in and day out, but we know that the hit rate is pretty low. Kind of segue over to,
1: um this pandemic which we're still technically in here um so the, the, can we talk silver linings you know and you know and, and also challenges and opportunities i guess but you know i'd love to hear your silver linings playbook both, um, you know, how has it changed business for Glasswing? How has it changed how you evaluate businesses? Maybe obviously, you know, hybrid work and sort of, you know, remote work is 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 prevalent right now. Is it is it impacting how you're evaluating businesses? And then how is it impacting and changing the way that just Glasswing itself operates? And it has, you know, how's it impacting? How's it impacted your life?
0: Sure. So. You know, out of the box early on, yeah, we were all working remote, and we had to adapt pretty quickly to remote teamwork. And uh, you know, we, we we focused pretty heavily in the early days of COVID on just making sure our existing portfolio companies were resilient and could weather the storm. And once we had that locked down, then it was turning our attention to new opportunities. Um, you know, I think the entire investing world slowed down for a while because none of us were quite sure how to. Make that next investment in a company where you may not necessarily have met the team in person before, or had a chance to go tire kick. You know the the, the office space. You know, I think a lot can be learned just walking into the uh, you know the coffee room or the kitchen, whatever you want to call it, of a typical startup. Uh, just seeing the the buzz of the employees and. And sometimes even understanding you know what snacks are in the snack bar <laughs> and how the money gets spent. you know some of the, the insights you can learn from uh, the, the level of inventory relative to seven eleven is uh, is is interesting so uh, we pretty quickly though got down to uh, figuring out a process whereby we could evaluate companies over zoom i think you know uh, early on we were more likely than not to consider companies that we had some relationship with prior pre-existing either we had started meeting yeah there was some pre-existing relationship we knew an executive from you know a prior company or or something so that even though the diligence was being done remotely it wasn't like you were investing over Zoom in a total team of strangers. Sure. Um, you know, I think now we're you know we're back to hybrid. In fact, a lot of the team at Glasswing like to go in every day of the week. Uh-huh. You know, I I tend to be half half. I think it depends on the individual and how they best work at this point. But I think we all have realized that we can be very effective not being in the office although that team you know the camaraderie and I think just the water cooler talk is more uh, effective when you're in person as much as you like to think that you know zoom and slack and other things can give you that that uh, that benefit virtually so um, you know I'd say one of the benefits of uh, you know the pandemic just from a work Perspective is, you know, the days that I'm not in the office, you know, I literally can have half hour to hour long meetings back to back from early in the morning to, you know, evening and cram much more content into every day. I mean, you do feel that. Um, At the end of the day, I, I, you know, I was definitely getting Zoom fatigue early on. I had kind of yeah. Somehow accommodated my brain uh, more recently that I don't feel the same way. But you know, first few months of of just nonstop Zoom meetings, I felt like a Zoom uh zombie. I used to call myself a Zombie at the end of the day. <laughs> and uh it it was rough. But no, you, you can certainly be more productive on keeping uh current with folks and maintaining relationships. You know, a lot of the folks that you know, we talked to whether it's co-investors at other VC firms or just people in the network, or calling up you know people in, in corporate development at you know a Splunk or Microsoft, or talking to your favorite investment banker. None of that was done in person outside of you know a few industry events. You know, if I was going to the RSA show, sure, I'd, I'd see a lot of people in a particular day in person. But most of those relationships during the year would be you know maintained with. Thirty or even fifteen-minute phone calls, and now you can do a lot more of that. So I feel like, from a relationship perspective, and from a meeting productivity perspective, you know, working from home is uh, it, 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 you know has, has been a good thing. I, I get more done. Yeah. Uh, you know, the bad side of it is is not having the same level of connectivity with the team, and if you do think of a venture. As a bit of an apprenticeship, you know, I'm sure that uh, you know if you were to ask the associates in our firm how they're feeling about you know the partners like me being remote on a day like today on a Thursday, they'd say, eh. you know, I, I, you know, that that is part of the downside that they may not get to the same level of uh, you know training or insight that uh, they would have gotten seeing the partners in action five days a week in the office
1: yeah that that's interesting and i i'd love to kind of also talk a bit about on the personal side because i know from you know from chatting sort of offline with you um and sort of pre pre-interview today like it it sounds like it's it's been nice for for you and your family and and you've been able to kind of develop um a, a new rhythm um you know to use to kind of draw back to to your music roots um can you just speak be, speak a bit to sort of the 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 silver lining there? You know, for the for the Grinnell family that you know
0: throughout all of this. Oh, you bet. So yeah. you know, two years ago, I would have been on the road at least once a week somewhere, whether it was to the Bay Area or to New York or DC Metro, yep. to uh, either look at a new company or do something for a portfolio company board meeting or whatnot. Um, you know, meet with an LP, uh, and you know you the the kids, you know, I have a 10 year old and a 12 year old, both little boys. Uh, you know, they didn't see dad half the time. Uh, now, you know, given the fact uh, I can't say I have traveled a lot over the last 18 months, you know, they have seen me. My wife has seen me, you know, literally on average, it's six days a week for the last, uh, you know, year and a half. So I think from a Family perspective, it's been a great thing. You know, we've all been uh, you know healthy through you know the the pandemic. Knock on wood, and uh, you know, despite some of the you know the the school issues where schools would get shut down and remote learning was certainly not ideal, uh, you know, for their development last year. You know, I think uh, in general it has made the family uh, you know tighter, and I think you know just like i said how our associates probably have had a, a disadvantage by not seeing as much of me i think that my kids have been advantaged because they do see more of me and i can you know help them with homework and encourage them with sports and do things day to day that i never would have been able to do um you know otherwise so you know, i think just being present in the absence of any you know one major thing is a big benefit for little kids
1: Thank you for sharing that I you know I appreciate it and it's been it's been similar on my end it's been nice to to spend you know pretty much every day um, with with my family for the last couple of years and while still finding ways to be more more productive and create healthy habits and all that so um, I'm, I'm nice to hear that Rick um, and as we sort of come towards the end of the conversation here um, one of the things we love asking is sort of like um, what what sort of challenge you you would have for listeners? And you know you had some really um, interesting thoughts when we were just doing the pre pod Q and A together. But we would just love for you to kind of share, like you know, like what, what you would share with, with folks and, and sort of encourage them to
0: to be mindful of and and, and sort of moving forward into twenty twenty two. Yeah, I think in general, but particularly if you want to work in venture, you have to have a mindset where. You want to keep learning something new every day of the week. And uh, so it's that intellectual curiosity, it's that uh, just desire to get a new skill set. You know, that skill set could be becoming an expert on cybersecurity, which I had to do from scratch, you know, 20 years ago, and it's continued to keep learning, or it could be. You know, transitioning like again, like I did, you know, handful of years ago, from being you know primarily organist, piano player, to starting to to uh, learn the guitar, which is a lot harder than I would have ever thought. But you know, it's doing something that keeps your brain, uh, you know, and your knowledge base expanding. And uh, you know, I think, again, for the, the venture world and for the audience that wants to get into to, to, you know, our industry, it's you know one part, you know, doing, learning something fun. it could be a language, it could be a musical instrument, it could be learning how to paint, but the other part of it should be learning something that is applicable to the world that you'd like to invest in. So uh, you, know, keep, keep pushing the ball forward on knowledge and, and new skills. Um, you know, another challenge I, I would just say for anyone, because to me, it's one of the best things that I do outside of family and work, and that's just giving back. And you know, I've been doing that for a long time. And I, I would say, you know, a lot of people have the excuse, especially when you're young, like, "Hey, I don't have the money to," you know, be, you know, on a board of a nonprofit. You know, they're they're just looking for big donors. But you know, there's a lot of things you can do beyond, you know, the you know the window dressing of having you know some philanthropic board on your resume. There are things that you know you can volunteer at the Greater Boston Food Bank. Uh, you could be a volunteer at the Museum of Science, become a big brother or big sister. Uh, all of those things, I think, have just such an impact. And, and yes, there is a time commitment involved, but I think the reward and the mental uplift that you get by doing it, Combined with the benefit to those around you that you're helping, you know, you, you you won't feel that you have you know spent time doing something that would have been better spent doing something else. So I, I would just encourage anyone you know coming out of school while you're still in school, find something that you're passionate about and you know and, and help that organization in some way, shape, or form. And, and over time, you know, as you know, you do uh, start to build up the bank account a little bit. You know, giving back and and thinking about you know joining advisory boards and boards. You know, it, it's a really a great benefit to the community.
1: I really love the big brother, or big sister sort of encouragement. As a as a former big brother and also um, former big brother, big sister Boston uh, recruiter for the for the for the Boston office. Um, it's a really really rewarding. Uh, it, sort of an endeavor to to pursue. Um, you know, Rick, you're gonna have to hit me up after. I'm curious how many
0: steps you've tra- you've. You've logged on this call,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> for folks, yeah. You're watching me walk around for the, folks listening right now while we're doing this.
1: Yeah, we're recording yeah. on Zoom, and 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 um, I love it. I I I, tra- I I became a walker in the pandemic too. The walk, the walk and talk has been great, but I don't know. Like, I, I got to think north
0: of five thousand steps. I actually would yeah, like to report. That's probably it. probably right. It's probably logged over a mile, right? <laughs> maybe two but you know this is something you'll you laugh you know i grew up you know starting in the 70s you know the telephone had a very long cord attached to the handset and i remember getting on the phone with my friends uh and just wandering around the living room with that cord attached to me and i i've, I've this is not a new habit <laughs> i love it
1: yeah i've always been a pacer walker talker um since a young age i think i got it from my
0: mom who who is very much a a walker talker as well. Um, yeah, Rick, it's, it's one of the yeah. reasons why Zoom is. I was going to say it's one yeah. of the reasons why Zoom being stationary and staring into a yeah. camera is very difficult. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. No, it's it's why it's it's interesting. There's a there's kind there's a nice little sub sector of uh, like audio chat, you know, startups that have sort of like picked up some steam during the pandemic because because right. Zoom. Fatigue and and um, you know the ability to to move and be present actually is something I appreciate. Like I actually I listen to podcasts when I run. Um, yeah, I do course. phone calls when I walk. Like I, I'm when I'm in movement, I actually can really lock into a conversation or listening to a podcast. Um, so and I think. I think there's some science behind that, but it's also, you know, to each their own. It, it works for certain people, uh, but it, cer- it certainly works for me as well. So we're we're from right. we're cut from the same cloth in that. Regard. <laughs>
0: Now it makes you wonder how I could have ever worked in the video conferencing industry, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Rick, this has been a pleasure, man. I really appreciate you taking, uh, taking all the time. I'm looking forward to sharing this with the, with the community and, and just live, uh, wishing you sort of a, just a lovely uh, you know, holiday holiday season as we get right across. All close.
0: right. Same to you, Zach. This has really been a pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, having this discussion with you. Thank you, sir. You have, a, you have a wonderful rest of your day. All right. You too. Thanks. All
1: right. Take care. Cheers. Cheers, Boston.